0: Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast presented by safeopedia.com, empowering the workplace with free health and safety information. I'm your host, Pat Robinson. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our discussions with experts and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation and safety best practices. Now, to today's guest. Today's guest is Chris Ward. Chris's OHS career spans 40 years in a variety of roles, including regulator, investigator, educator, and author. He is an ISO 45001 specialist and an OSAS 18001 auditor. As an OHS management system author, Chris was instrumental in the creation of HSG 65, a foundational standard that laid the keel for other OHS standards that followed, including our subject today, ISO 45001. Uh, more on HSG 65 in a few moments. A holder of a postgrad diploma in OHS, Chris served as principal inspector for the Health and Safety Executive, the United Kingdom's independent occupational safety regulator. While at HSE, Chris was responsible for legal enforcement and management of inspectors and investigators across a broad range of manufacturing and service industries. Given Mr. Ward's innate knowledge of OHS management systems, and as we will hear his experience with the forerunner of OSAS 18001 through the recent publication of 45001, what follows is a conversation chock full of practical advice and the wisdom of the years of an individual who's been in the middle of it. You can find out more about Chris on LinkedIn where he administers that community's largest ISO 45001 related group in the search bar of your LinkedIn homepage type IMS Global Standards. Chris also has a website IMSGlobalStandards.com. With that, Chris, welcome to the Safety Talks podcast.
1: Thank you, Pat. That's um, an introduction that took 40 years to create and just over 40 seconds to run through, so well
0: done. <laughs> Tremendous, and we're going to find out lots more about, uh, about uh, your background and knowledge as we go through this, I'm certain. Let's get grounded on the fundamentals of 45001. Describe uh, the International Standards Organization and then a little bit about uh, 45001 itself.
1: Yes, thank you, Pat. The uh, International Standards Organization has been, it was formed a, in the late 1940s. And it's an independent, non-governmental organisation. And it creates voluntary standards. It is a membership organisation and the membership is um, made up of the national standards bodies for uh, the various countries around the world. And as it stands just now, there are just over 160 members and that means that there's 160 different national standards bodies. So here in the UK, it's uh, the British Standard Institute. Uh, in the USA, it will be ANSI, the American National Standards Institute. Uh, just a, a word about how it operates. Uh, and when uh, readers see a standard, they may say it in three official languages, either English, French or Russian. Uh, those are the official languages of uh, ISO. But what happens is each national standards body, if it, if it so wishes, will translate into their own language. But it will be a straight translation with no changes. One of the rules of membership of the ISO is once a standard has been agreed, it has to be transposed into a national standard without any changes. So the value of ISO standards is that they can promote world trade through various elements of the type of standard that is created. So quite typically, the standards cover uh, product quality, Uh, that means something like ISO 9001, or energy efficiency, uh, ISO 50,000, and products and services, which is 10377, for instance. The standards can The sector-specific, either for industrial standards, such as the automotive industry standard, 16949, or they can be commercial. And there are over 20,000 ISO standards in place currently around the world, which is a phenomenal number. And from a practical perspective, I specialise in health and safety, and there are probably only three or four that are relevant In some sectors, of course, there'll be a a lot more, but I suspect there will be no organisation that would have to deal with thousands of them. The standards are produced by volunteers appointed by the national standards bodies. And there's a 10-step process to producing a standard, which goes from the initial thoughts, a preliminary working item, an idea that a group or a sector or people will have, and then they move forward through committed stage to a, an international standards typically it takes three years uh, in the, the particularization of forty five hundred and one the process took five years uh, which was probably a reflection of the dichotomy and the diverse interests of the various national standards bodies and the increasing number of standards bodies who wanted to take part originally there. I think there were about 40 national standards bodies. But at, at the end, uh, there were almost 100 national standards bodies taking part in developing the standard. So as Pat has said, the origins of 4501 started about 30 years or so ago. And HSG 65 was one document that was a catalyst. And the catalyst started organisations thinking in management terms rather than uh, physical safety terms. And uh, so HSG-6 divide spawned BS-8800, which again was revised to create OSAS 18001 in 2007. And on the back of the popularity of OSAS 18001, the National Standards Bodies decided to develop this 4,501, and started in 2003. It is an international OHSMS, and it's the first one, the first truly global standard. OSAS 18001 was a British standard, and um, I think there were almost 100,000 organisations certified to it, which leads on to, we'll touch on this later, the likely popularity of 4,501. Uh, Just one uh, last point about ISO and this particular standard. It's a management standard that conforms to a standardized structure. Uh, And the standardized structure is called Annex SL. And Annex SL was developed by ISO in 2015 to provide a common framework for all management standards. So all management standards post-2015 had to be created in the eyes of uh, Annex SL, and those that were created pre that will have to revise as time goes by. So, uh, for instance, at the moment, there's probably five or six integrated management standards who work to Annex SL, Uh, 9,000, 14,000, 27,000, 45,000, and I think there's 23,000 is also a managed IMS series. Uh, and just one last word about Annex SL. The structure of it provides a framework of 10 clauses. Each standard has to have the same 10 clauses with the same 10 headings, and there is text within, under those headings explaining what the headings mean and what the clause mean, and that's got to be common text that has to be the same for each management standard. But within that text, There can be specific and topical and uh, sector-applied guidance and information related to the particular topic of the standard. So health and safety is integrated within that common text of those common clauses. And the seven particular clauses that we'll be concerned about are context, leadership, planning, support, operation, measurement and improvement and we will provide a link so that you can read more about iso
0: okay that's uh, that's a great uh, a bunch of detail and and background chris a couple of things that were noteworthy just as you were um going through those um one is that with 160 countries signatory to iso that's an awful lot of folks at the table to get them all to to smile and nod so at the, at the same time and, and sign off on the documents that come out of the ice organization. So that speaks to just how difficult it, it may be to, to move these things through. That said though, um, I was surprised to hear and I suspect that there wouldn't be a great deal of sort of public consciousness around the idea that there's 20,000, you had mentioned 20,000 standards that have been issued through the ISO organization. So, my sense would be that, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of knowledge regarding certainly the quality standard and uh, the security standard and some of the others that are out there that, you know, probably have more name brand recognition, for lack of a better term. So, would I be correct in thinking that uh, of the 20,000 that are out there, a good bunch of those are? Um, related to manufacturing, and they would be specific to manufactured products and goods, as opposed to, say, management system standards that are guiding sort of business activities. So what might a breakdown be?
1: You're right. A lot of those standards are quite esoteric. So they'll be on the design of specific components or assemblies or um, a particular type of service, including electrical uh, equipment, we mentioned automotive, and then there'll be aeronautical and so on and so forth. And um, so, yes, a, a lot of those will be standards we commonly don't have to deal with. In terms of the management standards that there are, pertain at the moment, um, uh, Pat, I couldn't actually tell you, give you a number, but I, I did hint at the fact that those that have been revised in the light of Annex SL are the common quality and environmental and security standards. Right. And they are management standards. And I don't think that there are very many more. Perhaps we'll come back to this in a later podcast, but um, I would say that I think they're going to be in single figures.
0: Okay. Well, that gives a good reference point for, I mean, as we had mentioned, there's um, a handful of ones that really deal with management systems for organizations. So this sounds like a good um, opportunity to step into some of the details. So ultimately, what are the benefits for an organization in gaining 45,001 accreditation?
1: We've said that this is the first truly global occupational health and safety management standard. There are a significant number of organisations already certified to 9,000 and 14,000. And I'll come on to those a, a little later. But those organisations who want to be at the forefront of good governance, who want to look, truly look after their health and safety and welfare of their employees and for the community at large, this uh, standard is the gold standard for them to work to. They will gain, not only and en- enhance their reputation by working to this standard, and there are those organisations, of course, who uh, are very concerned about reputation management because it uh, concerns their profitability and ability to win orders uh, and avoiding uh, civil and statutory litigation. So um, there are those who want... To um, maintain their reputation. And um, for good, good corporate governance in this era where global governance is very much in the spotlight, it's in the eyes of the media and in the eyes of the public, they, this standard will be one to which they aspire. You could almost say, Pat, is if you're reputing yourself to be a, a global leader and having good governance, how can you afford not to? have signed up to 45,001 and consider yourself when you're in under the scrutiny of civil litigation and, and the lawyers challenged the organization, said, well, you did have a failure. Everybody has a failure. Why didn't you have 45,001? Wouldn't that have helped you cover this weakness in your systems? So those organizations are worried about reputation. The, those who will be concerned ethically about the health and safety and welfare of welfare their, of their people and the community at large. And if they truly believe that health and safety is their first priority, again, they will be under some pressure and uh, some feeling that they need to show that they're going to demonstrate that safety is their first priority. 45,001 is made for that. The other uh, aspect of globalisation is that it is a, going to be best practices which will help uh, in global trade and in this era of increasing uh, trade barriers and uh, fractioning of trading blocks, it will help uh, those global organisations work through those trade barriers, and break them down, because there will be a commonality of approach. I will mention a little bit more of that later. In effect, the standard will help organisations manage their particular health and safety systems in a much more coherent way particularly if they don't have a standard but uh, we've already mentioned that there are other management standards and there are already other product standards uh, this global management standard will draw all those things together under one common approach and in particular it's almost last but not least with this standard It brings together the top management team for the governance of a management system. Uh, And then then, this is the first management standard that has placed so much emphasis on top management and leadership. Uh, And one of the benefits, although it's not outwardly stated, one of the benefits I see is that because there's an emphasis on top management to show leadership and commitment, it will help bring together the multifunctional nature of organisations. Sometimes, let's think about finance and production and human resources. Quite often, they can be competing within an organisation for resources and with their own particular aims. But because this management standard will have objectives set for it, there will be common aims, and that may well help, and act as a catalyst of bringing these competing functions together in the common goal of health and safety.
0: Uh, Another great bunch of detail there, Chris. Um, A couple of comments that I'd I'd make too is um, regarding your remarks in terms of reputation management in this age of social media and the fact that um, uh, opinions, maybe not necessarily facts, but certainly opinions can be transported around the globe in a matter of uh, minutes. Uh, This has changed, I think, a lot of the Uh, a lot of the thinking regarding uh, many organizations and while we're talking specifically about health and safety management systems today um, i give you examples where you see corporate behaviors changing and that might even just be as simple as what happens say in a uh, in a restaurant these days it used to be um, not so long ago in fact where if there was a problem with uh, food that was put in front of a patron um there could be a, a discussion let's say of, of varying degrees of uh, intensity um, over whether there was really a problem with the, yeah. the meal or whether there was a problem with the patron this phenomenon doesn't really even happen anymore most advanced organizations and um, you had mentioned it's it's uh, typically the larger and and better resourced more mature organizations that I have uh, an interest in forty five thousand and one this sort of goes over into the the restaurant and the and the Uh, service business as well, wherein if you uh, as a patron are saying, hey, look, I I don't um, like this meal for whatever reason, there really is no debate. Most restaurants simply will take that away and um, remake another one uh, to make sure that um, you're satisfied because um, the the small cost of replacing that meal is really peanuts in the big scheme of things compared to someone going on to Google reviews or tweeting um, something negative rightly or wrong about uh, about their um, experience so this is a great example where companies are becoming far more aware of reputational management as you suggest The other thing I I thought was interesting was your comment regarding ethics. And this is uh, an area in the health and safety business that um, needs some growth. And uh, organizations, I think, more and more are moving towards ethic-based decision-making, not just legislative or because somebody said so or, you know, it seems like the right thing to do or this might be a legal requirement. Um, New behaviors and, and new thoughts are taking over in terms of of um and you'd and also mentioned this being led by management, that executives are now more and more concerned about whether decision-making at the board level, at the executive level and down the line management chain, whether those decisions are being made with an ethical basis. And uh, more and more work and um, research is being done uh, in, in many corners. Um, there's linkages in um, safety differently and some organizational psychology uh, folks that are out there, um, so I just think that forty five thousand and one helps uh, embed these kinds of activities and these thoughts and um, helps change uh, decision making towards more ethically based decision making that then that ultimately is a very good thing for us
1: Yes, Pat, can I just add there an example that occurs to me, and I think it 's an example that people recognize now around the globe. A number of years ago, you'll remember the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh where the garment factory floors and building collapsed and the garment manufacturers supplied most of the world-leading brands of designer clothing. And uh, forgive me, I cannot quite remember the exact figure, but it is a four-figure death toll. Uh, It's around 1,000 or so. Following that collapse... The initiative was brought together both for ethically and also for brand reputation. So the garment manufacturers came together and agreed common standards to approach health and safety in particularly in third world countries and developing countries. And over 200 of the world's largest brands now work together to ensure ethical standards of health and safety and manufacturing in, these, uh, developing, in developing countries.
0: Yeah, I was just looking here quickly, and um, that was a, two th- it looks like a 2013 um, event, and yeah, you're right, just over 1,100 people uh, killed in that particular incident, and another 2,500 injured from that uh, that particular building collapse. So let's talk then about 45001 is a big deal uh, in the big scheme of things when you look over the uh, years and the various standards that have come along. And as you would mentioned, 45001 is uh, now a global standard issued through ISO, which brings its own um, legitimacy to to it. What's different about this standard than traditional OHS approaches?
1: The standard is uh, what's known as objective setting which is quite different from the historical approach of health and safety, which is mainly about prescription. Prescription meaning that you have a regulation, a statute, a law that requires a certain thing to be done. And that certain thing could be, for instance, to fix a a guardrail or a handrail on on stairs or on an open edge of the floor. You'd have a barrier of some description. It would have to be made from a particular sort of material it would have to have some certain dimensions. Uh, It was self-evidently, the aim was to stop people falling off. Now, with objective-setting legislation and objective-setting approach, the aim is to stop people falling. How you uh, achieve that can be done in a number of different forms. And what it does do is try to get to the end point of preventing injury. The problem with prescription is that if your stairway or edge of the floor doesn't quite fit how the regula- regulation is applied, you may not have to do anything about it in terms of the regulation. In other words, the regulations misses a, a lot of health and safety risk and leaves gaps uh, and doesn't consider them. And it doesn't, certainly doesn't keep up with technological advances and different conditions in different areas of the world, for instance. So objective setting is, is very good. They did that in the UK almost 50 years ago now, and it brings with it problems, and that is it creates some uncertainty because if you've been used to looking at prescriptive legislation, there will have been a detailed specification about what you need to do. Uh, with objective setting, you've got a number of different routes to go down, but you meet, must meet the minimum standards of the law. That's quite right. It was also, it goes with uh, objective setting, is it is risk-based. So you look at particular sorts of risks, assess those risks, uh, see, you may quantify them into high, medium, and low. But you're certainly uh, looking at preventing ill health and accidents to people. Whereas, again, prescription and regulation may miss pre- uh, requiring protective measures. The other thing about the standard is it's on um, the... Uh, Commonly accepted Plan Do Check Act approach to management. Some historical standards weren't working to Plan Do Check Act. Um, certainly HSG65. It became well known as being a Popmar standard: planning, uh, policy, organisation, planning, uh, measurement, auditing, and review. And that was that was a common lingua franca for many safety professionals around the world. But they and that will now be more commonly. Uh, looking towards the Plan Do Check Act approach. Uh, the other aspect to it is it's moving away from a procedure-based standard where the duty holder or the, the organisation uh, used to be required to have procedures for anything that had a health and safety element to it, to, and therefore procedures generally would have to be written down and they'd have to be formulated, and then they have to be revised, and so on. Difficulty, a tremendous difficulty with the procedures, and it, it led to a lot of the um, procedure manuals sitting on the shelf of the safety professionals' bookcase in their office and not going any further. And the process approach is about going through a route map of looking at particular activities and applying various elements of risk assessing or job safety and others analyzing the task and fitting it into the plan do check app process uh, we mentioned how important it is for top management to be involved and um i think we could talk a long time about leadership and top management and that's i think that's for another podcast uh pat
0: i i think that there's um, a whole bunch there to unpack as well chris and um it's encouraging. I mean, the standard is dealing with some evolutionary concepts there, and one of them, your point there, the difference between prescription and perhaps uh, a performance uh, based uh, approach. The difficulty, not that there isn't value in checklists, certainly there is. Um, checklists have proven their value in so many industries over the years. Um, air flight in particular, you look at uh, where checklists are routinely used and routinely keep people safe at very, very high levels. That said, if you're looking at more dynamic workplaces, the air industry, for example, is is not particularly dynamic from the point of view that there's you have the equipment, it's known well, it's, very, it's highly proceduralized, it operates in, in Uh, typically, I guess I would say a fairly linear way, other than sort of weather impacts and and those kinds of things. Air flight is is relatively straightforward from a procedural point of view. Um, And the people executing the work, the pilots and the engineers are are extremely well trained. This isn't the case in uh, many, many other types of businesses. Um, So, Enabling workers to own the risk identification process and come up with safe work practices and procedures that they have ownership of strikes me as a very valuable step in the right direction. The idea that line management or safety folks, as you mentioned, the the uh, safety pro who has um, binders of procedures sitting on a, on a shelf somewhere, um, those don't do a lot of uh, good, don't provide ongoing value for uh, the workers charged with uh, implementing those procedures, particularly if they didn't participate in their creation and uh, they feel no ownership. So I think um, moving from uh, prescriptive to uh, performance-based and um, having those at the sharp end, as they might say, uh, participating and leading uh, these, these efforts is uh, very much a step in the right direction.
1: This standard is is, is taking uh, some of these risk management principles from another ISO standard, and so all the um, integrated management standards will be adopting these principles. We can give references to these 11 principles that are integrated into 4501. We can give those references in, in the uh, podcast, but it, it just quickly want to pick up on two of them. One is you mentioned that organisations have to be dynamic, uh, and that's one of the 11 management principles. The the other one I wanted to just pick up on was the the human and cultural factors, uh, which is one of those 11 principles. And that is mentioned in 4501, and is the area where more mature organisations will start focusing attention and resources. We can look at these human and cultural factors in a later podcast, but it, it, it did interest me when uh, I was helping draft this standard that we uh, considered that human behaviour was a risk, a, a hazard and a risk, which had never been con- specified before would always shied away from it, and you thought that behavioral safety and human behavior uh, wasn't a risk. We always think as a risk as something physical or chemical. But no, human behavior is a risk and uh, it's defined as such.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I just think that there's a, a whole sort of. Um... Uh, just a very broad uh, subset of human behaviors and organizational culture um, and the impact on uh, decision making um, and a variety of things that just is really untapped territory in the HSC profession. and. Um, I think you're quite right. We tend to default to physical conditions and there's um, you know, a whole bunch of energy around uh, concepts of behaviorism and, and whether uh, managing through behavioral-based safety programs and those uh, kinds of things is uh, net valuable uh, for organizations. I think it's much deeper than just trying to manage behaviors at the field level. We we're talking about things that motivate workers and line managers to behave in uh, certain ways and uh, really all of that stems from the top. So I think if the standard is moving organizations in, the, in these directions, then uh, this will be very much a net positive. Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Chris Ward. Coming soon on the Safety Talks podcast is my second conversation with Chris about the nuts and bolts of ISO 45001 implementation. Here's what's to look forward to. Top management engagement and how they should be committed. What effective worker participation looks like. The evidence of performance that's required to meet ISO 45,000 requirements. And the benefits and perils of outsourcing. Followed up by pre-qualification of supply chains. If you're interested in the ISO certification process or just want practical information for improving your safety systems and culture, this session contains much valuable information. Join us soon. If you like what you heard today or if you've liked previous podcasts or have interesting subject matter that our audience can learn from, we want to hear from you. Check our show notes at safopedia.com slash podcast You can email me at pat.robinson at hsebestpractices.com or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.